This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk about another reason to be happy. And we're going to find a few of these today. This is an amazing origin story. I put it up against Batman. I really do because we did have Batman walking up the street in London. Mark LaBelle of Fresh Radio proved it. And that was, I don't know, it was about 9 o'clock if you were in the downtown area. Big cape. You couldn't miss him. I don't know. He wasn't fighting crime. He may have been walking back from a false alarm. That was kind of the body language that he had. So I'm going to put this origin story up against even Batman's origin story. Because this one is amazing. And it has hit a new spot. James McInnes is the founder of Globally Local and joins us now. James... In the midst of everything that's going on, how is today going for you? Uh, I could be happier, to be honest. It's been an amazing day. Well, let's talk about what's made it so amazing, and then we'll go all the way back to the beginning, and we'll talk about how you got to today. James, what is different for Globally Local today? Uh, Well, today we're uh, the world's first publicly traded vegan fast food chain. So uh, that's just simply amazing. And I mean, the, the best part about this is that you know everyone can can now um, support us, you know, through through investment in other ways, which is which is um, which is so great. So congratulations, the the world's first publicly traded vegan food chain. That's 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 incredible. Okay, so let's uh, let's rewind all the way back to the beginning of this story because this began obviously as an idea first and then, you know, a humble start. So, let's go back to the idea. Where were you and what was going on? Well, I mean, the the idea for vegan fast food came from Rib Fast 2016 in London, Ontario. So, we brought a plant-based version of a we'll just call it an iconic uh menu item from the golden arches and um we brought that to Ribfest, and uh to our amazement there was so much demand for it that we sold out at that event and at the time you know vegan food and especially vegan fast food wasn't didn't really exist uh especially this obviously in the fast food food space but but um the the amount of interest and support was just incredible so from that that kind of kicked off us going into the fast food uh, business, to be honest. And so you, you, you spend the weekend at Ribfest. Now, where had you even come up with the idea for what would be a, a, a vegan you know, selection of fast food? Where had that started? Yeah, so we actually had run a meal kit company um, out of the old Farmer Jack's location there um, for about a year. And we had we had developed and tested a whole bunch of different you know meal kits, and we found out was that the ones that people loved the most were the ones that were like that were those iconic sort of fast food menu items that they could make at the time they were making at their home um, because we we provided the ingredients and they could they could cook it. So we knew from that there was a, there was a huge demand for uh, those type of more like iconic foods that bring us back. Uh, because a lot of people don't eat fast food anymore, and and it's not that they're not vegan or not. They just you know don't eat it for health reasons, or they don't like the um, highly processed ingredients, um, and uh, you know they, they they just don't eat it. So so now you know we we gave people the the the, the ability, and and obviously to, with less guilt to eat fast food again for a lot of people. So I think that's that's kind of was really exciting. 
Well, that gives us kind of the the uh, the origin story right there, then, of, of what took place in getting this going. Ribfest proves that you can get it off the ground. We're talking with James McInnes, founder of Globally Local. Today, they have become the world's first vegan fast food chain that is being publicly traded. So, James, let's talk about where you went from there you had tried meal kits you obviously you you could go to as many festivals as we had but eventually festivals were going to stop when the snow flew where did you go from there yeah exactly so what we did after after rib fest we immediately went out and bought a food truck um because at the time obviously we didn't have a restaurant but we we decided to kind of like take it to the next level and say okay and, and then and then serve these items in the food truck and the food truck was so busy lineups um like in front of little life down there um and really really incredible so from that we we knew that you know again the, the demand was still there uh you know in, in in sort of like this food truck format and then we leased our first location on dundas street actually in uh in december 2016 and that's where we launched canada's first vegan fast food restaurant so that launched uh at that time that's fantastic so food truck, and then eventually you ditched the wheels. What happened there? Um, well, we actually kept the food truck for a long time. Uh, we, we, we ended up getting another, um, we, we ended up getting a drive through location on Highbury, actually. And so we had two locations and a food truck. And, with food tr- and then we were just busy everywhere. And we, we were, then we were driving the food truck all over Ontario. And we were just crazy, like at all these festivals, like just we could not believe the demand. And so we knew that we had to bring this to the world. We had to scale this out because, as you know, like London is an London is an amazing test market. And so we're so fortunate to have started here because if it, I, I believe, like if you can get something to succeed in London, it can succeed. It can succeed anywhere in the world. Um, and so that's that. That was like that kind of proof of concept that just took us to the next level. So that's kind of. Um, you know where, where that was that's that is outstanding and how many other products and companies can say the same thing now do you believe it was the type of food and maybe the fact that it wasn't all that common in the way that you were doing it or i mean do you have some special ingredients that are making this work where would you point james uh yeah special ingredients are just uh, for the most part whole plant-based foods and i think and I think that was kind of the key for what, what we're doing is that we're not like super ultra processed food. Like our burgers are made from chickpeas. Our bacon is made from organic tempeh. Um, you know, uh, our, our chicken's made from seitan. It has like four or five ingredients in it. So we're talking about very simple uh, ingredients for the most part. And, um, but, you know, you, you combine that with indulgence. So, for example, we still have fries and onion rings. And, uh, and like Coke, like typical pop products, right? So it's not about necessarily being healthy because as fast food, it is an indulgence, right? What we say is like we're healthier fast food. And more importantly, we are the, the best choice for sustainability for the planet. That's the most important thing. It's your health, your health is obviously important, but our planet is really important and we need to take care of it and take action and, and really where our buying decisions uh, go that realize that has such a huge effect. So I think that's kind of like, that's kind of where we evolved to where we are now. And is that due to the packaging and things like that that you're talking about? Um, just due to the, 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 the well, plant-based foods, they, they don't take as much resources to make them. You know, so a chickpea doesn't take as much resources as, say, feeding an animal for 
20 years, right? And then, and then eating it. So when you look at the, the carbon footprint of, you know, uh, animal-based protein, it's like way, way higher compared to, compared to a plant-based equivalent. So it's, we're really talking about here the, the animal-based proteins compared to plant-based proteins. James McInnes, founder of Globally Local, today being traded publicly. So as a final question, James, what happens when when you begin to be traded publicly? Is there something you can watch? Do you, do you get sent a bell you can ring in the mail? What happens? Well, what's going to happen today, actually, we're going to ring the closing bell on the TSX. So people can tune in for that at 4 p.m. And, um, and then, you know, really, we're just we're, we're, we're a public company. Our ticker symbol is GBLY. So if people want to check it out, it's trading right now. We're, we're already up uh, over two, 200% in the day. So there's huge demand, uh, obviously, for this. And uh, we just, we're excited for everyone to now join us. Fantastic. Congratulations. You have one of the best origin stories out there. Better than Batman. I think we've proven it. Amazing. James, have, you so yourself, have yourself a great day. Enjoy ringing the bell. Uh, not too many people can say they've ever done that. And it's coming for you in three and a half hours. Thanks so much. That is James McInnes, founder of Globally Local. Let's look at something that has changed, because there are a lot of things that have changed. Uh, This one involves camping and recreational activities on Crown land in the province of Ontario. Because last night, the announcement came down that as of... April 16th, which is, look at your calendar, today, 12 a.m., so that was a few hours ago, about 12 and a half hours ago, recreational camping on Crown land will be prohibited to help stop the spread of COVID-19. So let's try and understand what that means. Joining us right now is marketing specialist Steve Sauter with the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. Steve, thanks for taking some time for us. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's easy for the ministry to say, okay, crown land, yeah, can't camp on crown land. We can think we might know what crown land is, but let's kind of clarify. Is there an easy way to say that right there is crown land, but look, over there, that isn't? Yeah, I think it's a a term that a lot of people are confused about. And and the other thing that they've added to that is they say uh, crown land and conservation reserves. And I think for people in this part of the province, when they hear conservation reserves, they automatically think of conservation areas, and, and they're not the same thing. Um, so crown land, there, there is limited crown land in southwestern Ontario. Uh, most of the crown land um, that we think about in terms of large tracts are in northern Ontario and other parts of Canada. Um, conservation reserves even, there's very limited conservation reserves in southwestern Ontario. Um, there's, um, there's a lot of conservation areas and that's not to be confused because conservation areas uh, continue to be available at this time for people to go for a walk, uh, to get outdoors, of course, following all the, uh, uh, the protocols uh, and uh, being safe and keeping uh, your family safe. But those areas are scheduled um, to be open after the um, lockdown for uh, camping uh, and other recreational services. Of course, there'll be protocols in place for that, um, but these areas... The plan at this point is they were to open May 6th. Now, we'll, we'll learn more this afternoon um, when the, uh, the premier comes on, because, of course, we follow everything that the, uh, the province um, dictates around this, as well as our local health units. 
and that's a that's a very uh, um, changing uh, uh, landscape right now, uh, based on the numbers in Ontario. Is it ever? Steve Sauter joining us, marketing specialist with Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. So when we hear Crown Lands, then Fanshawe Conservation Authority, that that would be okay. It's still okay to, to go there, provided again, whatever the Premier says this afternoon. But as of right now, when everything opens up, that's that's okay? That's correct, yeah. So the, the three local ones that, that we take care of here, uh, around London are Fanshawe Conservation Area, Wildwood Conservation Area be, between St. Mary's and Stratford, and Piddock Conservation Area uh, by Woodstock. And those are all, all relatively close, and people that are in the listening area here may have, have favorite ones. And again, we just want to stress the safety for uh, visitors as well as staff, that people stay in their family groups. Um, you know, if the parking lot is full, just come back another time. Uh, we, we understand people need to get out and get a little bit of uh, uh, physical activity and, uh, and get a little bit of uh, refreshment, uh, and certainly uh, we're happy to provide that. And there's no there's no charge for that right now. Our gates aren't open. People can come in and, and access those areas. We just want people to stay really safe, respect other people, and respect the environment, of course. Sounds like just regular common sense rules, Steve. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, we really appreciate you outlining the difference between crown lands and not crown lands. Um, maybe if, for anybody who's just joining us, can, can you run through it one more time for us? Sure. So the the crown lands that were announced this morning about uh, not being able to camp on those, those generally are found in northern Ontario and there are large tracts of lands uh, that aren't serviced with the conservation areas. It doesn't even affect uh, a park like um, the Pinery. That would be under the same rules uh, that they put forward based on the lockdown rules. But um, the other areas are the conservation reserves, and there's very limited number of conservation reserves uh, in southwestern Ontario. But many people confuse those very much with conservation areas. They hear conservation, and they just think automatically it's Fanshawe, Wildwood, and Pedock, and oh my gosh, we can't camp there this summer. And we certainly hope you can. Um, we'll just be following very closely uh, to what uh, transpires this afternoon and in the days ahead uh, with the uh, provincial guidelines and the guidelines of our local health units. Steve, for the moment, I think you've made a lot of people who enjoy camping or who enjoy getting out and walking around on some of the trails and paths. I think you've made them really happy. Thanks for doing that. (laughs) No problem. Thank you. Keep safe. You too. That is Steve Sauter, marketing specialist with Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. And this, again, is a bit of a disconnect that I wish governments would address. And it doesn't matter whether you live in Ontario or whether you live in Saskatchewan or whether you live in an entirely different country. Sometimes you will get caught up on things that are so second nature at the government level that when they're applied to all of us, you think, yeah, everybody's going to get this. Everybody knows the definition of a crown land. Well, maybe you did. And if you did, hey, hopefully Jeopardy is coming to your neighborhood for tryouts sometime soon. But in this case, it's it's a little bit tougher to understand what is and what isn't going. And it looks like we've got a lot more that is going than is not We're dealing with some higher-than-ever numbers. In places like Spain, at this time last year, they were dealing with some of the highest numbers in the world in terms of COVID-19. Case counts that in some days 
topped 10,000. And then in what ended up being, I don't even know if we call it a third wave there. I guess we do if you look at the way that their graph goes. Things got as high as 34,000 cases a day. And vaccination has seemed slow in the EU, but when you have a vaccine, you start looking and saying, okay, all right, what what is what is getting to be a little bit more normal we always like to look outside our own borders when we can to appreciate what is happening and so let's go to spain right now angela marti joins us angela thanks so much for being here how are you hi thank you so much for having me so tell us first off how you got to spain where are you originally from So I'm Canadian. I'm actually from London, Ontario, born and raised. I'm actually a Western alumni. And after I finished my Bachelor of Science, I moved to Spain originally to teach French. And then I stayed and now I'm doing my PhD here, working at a hospital and staying busy. I've been here for seven years now. And when you say staying busy, the last 13 months, uh, what has working at a hospital been like over the last year and a month? Well, as you can imagine, it's been incredibly hard. Uh, I'm lucky enough because I'm more on the research side of things. So when everything started, our entire laboratory was shut down. All of us were sent home. We were asked to work from home. So I was fortunate in that sense. Of course, since we deal with patients, um, about two months after the original lockdown happened, then we got sent back to work, obviously with all the restrictions and having to wear all the PPE. Um, it's been very difficult. A few of the doctors in my unit actually got COVID. We have to have, you know, augmented restrictions all the time. People can't come with, uh, for example, when you're coming for a visit, you can't come accompanied, uh, which is really hard to let people know that, especially when they need to have somebody with them. So it's been quite difficult. And especially dealing with patients one-on-one, it can be really hard when we have patients that need treatments and they can't come to the hospital uh, directly. We have to call them. So it's been complicated. That's the best way to sum it up. (laughs) And then if you look at life outside of the hospital and, and what you've been through, can you describe some of the things that the government in Spain has attempted to do in order to at least stem some of the spread of COVID-19, even though at times, I mean, the, the numbers per day are, are absolutely astronomical. And, and even now, you're looking in the country having, you know, 9,000, 10,000. But what has the last year been like from what the government has tried to do? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, when everything started back last year in March and then on to April and May, we actually had one of the strictest lockdowns in Europe. So to put it into perspective sake, I didn't leave my apartment for a month and a half. I didn't even step out on the street for a month and a half. Uh, we weren't allowed outside of our homes unless it was for an essential business. And, and essential here was very limited to what you could do. And people would get arrested on the streets. You could actually get fined or even sent to jail, depending on what the uh, sort of what you were doing. Um, and aside from obviously that very strict lockdown, which then lifted in May, although there has been what we refer to as a country level lockdown now and a county level lockdown. So, for example, right now, I can't leave the city of Barcelona unless I have an essential reason to do so, which would mostly be work-related or some kind of medical emergency. Um, but I'm ba- all of us are basically stuck within our counties. We can't travel from county to county. We can't cross the borders between the different autonomous communities. We can't 
for example, go to France or go to Portugal. So we're all kind of locked in. And, and we, of course, we have a curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, all of, right now, they're slowly starting to reopen some of the more public spaces like gyms and sports centers and restaurants, but they're all at 30% capacity. And they've been, you know, going closing one day and opening the other, I think, in a similar way to Canada. So, uh, and of course, face masks. Face masks are compulsory in all public spaces, whether indoors or outdoors. Those are just some of the restrictions that we've had. We're talking with Angela Marti, who's from London and now lives in Spain, and we're getting kind of what the last year has been like, and we'll talk about some other things like being away from family and and what that has been like. Angela now has received her vaccine or her vaccination, so we'll touch on that in just a, a minute or two. But you mentioned county to county. You can't move within county to county, and there has been talk about restricting things in Ontario about movement and, and those sorts of things, but you know we've we've never gone there in terms of restrictions. What is it like if if you were to go there? Have you heard? I mean, do, do they have police set up to prevent people from getting through on roads, or what do they do? Yes, that, correct, exactly. So there are like roadblocks on all of the major, for example, uh, exits outside of the city. So there are, you know, certain roads that take you onto the highways. So there will be police stationed at the exits and they will check your documentation. You have to um, print out what's called like an auto declaration that you have a you know, a reason to be out, for example, outside of your county, which unless is a reason that is, for example, you have a job that you have to travel from county to county or you have a medical emergency that you have to cross from one city to another, then if it's not one of those reasons, they will either tell you to turn your car back around and go home or they will fine you if it's a repeated offense. And um, I don't know if they if they would go further than that, but at the moment I have heard of people being fined for trying to leave the counties and they're quite strict in enforcing it, actually. We're talking right now with Angela Marti, and we are talking about what life is like in Spain. Now, as we mentioned, you've been vaccinated. Is vaccine hesitancy a topic of discussion in Spain? I think, to be perfectly honest, it's a topic of discussion everywhere around the world right now. Um, To put it into perspective within my experience, since I work at a hospital, um, all, my entire unit got vaccinated on the very first day that vaccines were available. There was no vaccine hes- hesitancy within my coworkers. And actually, so many people rushed to get the vaccine on the first day that they actually ran out. <laughs> and we had to wait a couple of days for the set, for the remainder of people to get that wanted to get vaccinated to get their vaccines. So at least within my social circles, I haven't encountered that. But of course, it is a topic that, that comes up. We're talking with Angela Marti. So how does it come up? I mean, you know, how do you feel that that people are feeling with regard to vaccines? You mentioned the, the big rush to get them at first. Is there hesitancy? Is it a conversation that people have saying, no, I'm, I'm never doing this? Um, here, I think, like I said, everywhere, there are certain groups of people that are more hesitant to get the vaccine. I, sp- I think especially uh, after the recent news about the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. However, um, at least here, all the people that I know have wanted to get their vaccines and have gone and gotten them. And I got my vaccine back in February, and I- I'm 
satisfied with my decision. I think I made the right choice. And I think the problem just stems that people are not being educated properly. And unfortunately, this, uh, the science community and the medical community maybe isn't getting the proper message out. And, and people are fear-mongering a little bit about what's been going on with, with vaccines. Um, so, yeah, it is definitely a topic of discussion in certain circles. Um, not one that I've been in, to be, to be honest, but it is something that comes up when you start talking about vaccines anywhere. Angela Marti joining us from London, living in Spain. And let's face it, when you were able to get your vaccine, what were you thinking about immediately? How, because of the year you've been through, not being able to leave the house for essentially, you know, over a month, what were you, you know, kind of dreaming, envisioning doing? Well, I find myself, I I personally feel very fortunate to have been able to receive both doses of the Pfizer vaccine uh, at the times that I was supposed to, and with actually very little trouble in getting either of them. I know that has not been the case for a lot of healthcare professionals and and a lot of people in the medical field or other. And I know that at least in our unit, we had people that were, you know, crying from the joy of receiving their vaccine. It has been a really, really difficult year for healthcare workers and that is has been a step that has shown us you know that maybe there is some hope and I am seeing that hope you know I think that people that are are starting to talk more about the fact that we're doing these vaccination campaigns and there is some kind of like you know positivity starting to show a little bit at least here on the streets. people are starting to you know you're starting to see people out on the streets a little bit more people are talking about um you know getting back to that reality post post covid and and getting back to what our lives were like before so i think for me the biggest thing that i'm excited about is that i hope that now that i'm vaccinated i will shortly be able to see my my family again once we get more news about how it works in terms of transmission i'm really hoping that will be something that i can do what's it been like angela being so far away from family for as long as you have been well as you can imagine it's been incredibly hard i i miss my family a lot even without a global pandemic in the way um and now given the situation i of course i worry about them a lot it's hard to be so far and to know that if an emergency happens, you can't just jump into a taxi and get to the hospital. So it's definitely been anxiety riddled for me. And I try to counteract that by being, uh, you know, talking to them as often as possible on the phone, making sure that we're in constant contact. But it's been incredibly hard. I, I wouldn't be able to say anything otherwise. How often would you normally visit over the course of a year if, if we had not had a pandemic? So normally, um, I try to go home at least once a year, twice if I'm lucky. So I usually go home for my summer holidays and for Christmas if if all goes well. And my my parents and my brother actually come and visit me quite often as well. So normally, I can expect a visit from my brother and a visit from my parents in the same year that I go home to visit. So we see each other often. So that's why it's been so hard because we had you know trips planned. My fam my parents actually had to had a flight booked to come see me in in May and they weren't able to come because they're obviously their plane tickets got canceled and they weren't able to make it. And I had plans to come home in September. I wasn't able to then, and then Christmas I wasn't able to. So it's just been a constant delay of, of seeing each other. 
London's own Angela Marti joining us in Spain and has not been able to get back, obviously, during the pandemic, has been dealing with what has been going on in that country during the pandemic where they have been particularly hard hit. All right, Angela, let's end off on on something really positive then. What are you looking forward to doing most when you get the opportunity? Well, the first thing that I'm most looking forward to is just seeing my family again. I can't wait to get off, you know, the plane and be able to finally hug my parents, hug my brother, hug my dog, see my best friends. And I'm also really just excited to travel again. I, I absolutely love for travel. It's my one of my passions. And I can't wait to be able to get back out into the world again and not have to worry, you know, that I might be bringing the virus with me. So I'm really hoping those are things that I'll be able to take advantage of in the future. And let's be honest, that like we all just want to get outside and, and get back to what our lives were like before all of this happened. That's it. Well said. We'll get there. Angela, you keep safe. Thank you so much for describing the way that things have been going in Spain over the last 13 months. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Take care. It. All right. Bye-bye. That is Angela Marti. Angela, born in London, raised in London, ended up in Spain for school, and then, woof, here we go into a pandemic. And, and as she mentioned, we can turn back the clock because of those incredibly high case counts and really difficult decisions in the healthcare sector that were going on last March, where you had 9,000, 10,000 cases some days. You had lockdown measures that were brought in and by may they had reduced case counts where there were days when they were under 500 when they were you know under 400 there's a day of 200 and it stayed that way until into july when it started to climb up and that's when they had their second wave and then they had their third wave through january and now you know things are kind of bumping up again a little bit in Spain where you'd have to wait for the data to continue on as to whether or not this would be a fourth wave, but they continue to try to vaccinate. But vaccines are tough to come by in the European Union, much the same way they are in Canada, where you're relying on other countries and other countries are saying, hey, we got to take care of us first. And so those sorts of things are happening. But how would we feel like, look at what Spain has right now. Don't leave the house. Don't. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.